Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, friends. Thank you for being here. We are excited for session number 13 on Pearls of Kindness, how we can build a more kind world together. And that starts with us and those around us. <clears throat> and so let's start with a little poll here, a little poll to get us warmed up um, on how we're thinking about this topic of judging favorably. Judging others. Number one, I judge people constantly since everyone and everything bothers me. <laughs> Option two, like everyone, I judge folks, but nothing too abnormal. Option three, I do a really good job at restraining judgment and just being curious. So uh, cast your vote here. Let's see where folks fall out. Welcome back, Steve. Welcome back, Lauren. <laughs> Okay, nobody here says I judge people constantly since everyone and everything bothers me. Okay, <laughs> that'd be a fair vote. 86% uh, say, like everyone, I judge folks, but nothing too abnormal. And 14% say, I do a really good job at restraining judgment and just being curious. Okay, friends, here we go. Excited to tap into this with you. We now transition from our first section about kindness to specific individuals, to this new section about kindness to all individuals. Kindness to everyone is quite difficult, of course, because we simply may feel more attracted toward helping some people over others. After all, the word kindness, some linguists have suggested, emerges from the old English word sind, C-Y-N-D, or kind, which refers to kinship. It is easier to be kind to our own kin. A psychologist in the UK, Penelope Campling, wrote, kindness implies the recognition of being of the same nature as others, being of a kind in kinship. It implies that people are motivated by that recognition to cooperate, to treat others as members of the family, to be generous and thoughtful. Taking care of one's parent when sick, helping one's neighbor when their car is stuck, listening empathically to one's child after a hard day, 
These are exhausting, but perhaps natural. It is our nature to take care of those in our most inner circles. When it comes to showing kindness towards those who are not our kin, not our kind, this can be more challenging. Yes, we all know how to hold a door for a stranger or say, say hello to a passerby or make an online donation to a group of vulnerable people, but deep radical kindness for strangers, that's more difficult. Albert Einstein writes, a human being is a part of the whole called by us, the universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion, to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Nobody is able to achieve this completely, but the striving for such achievement is in itself a part of the liberation and a foundation for inner security. Oh, I wish, I wish Professor Einstein could have been alive yesterday when we received this, this breathtaking image, um, this breathtaking image from NASA, uh, from this new web space telescope, showing us this image of light that in the brightest form is 4.6 billion years old, and in the most dim form is thir over 13 billion years old, right? If, if, the, if the Big Bang is about 13.8 billion years old, this is like just a few hundred million years after what we're seeing, just a few hundred million years after the Big Bang um, is, are these lights that we can now see through this telescope. Just remarkable, something that no one in humanity has seen before. We can experience our humanity by looking into the eyes of a person or into the eyes of an animal. Um, and we can also experience it not by zooming in, but by zooming out to the many, to the 200 billion galaxies that exist and, and feeling our largeness and our smallness, our cultivation of awe. And Einstein as a physicist thinking about these questions understands by the laws of nature that we are attracted to our kin we want to give everything to our kids, our grandkids, our partners, our closest friends. And yet, how do we experience ourselves as part of a whole? How do we experience the phenomena of empathy and kindness of love um, on a zoom out level? Okay, friends, that's the introduction. And so in this new section that we're now moving into, we won't look at actions that make the news right? An anonymous $50,000 gift to a homeless person or a family who adopts 10 vulnerable kids, siblings, and the like. We will look at the humble every day, indeed, every moment opportunities that we are presented with in our lives. Perhaps the most humbling place to start is judging favorably because each of us, I think, fails at this daily in some small, unnoticeable ways and perhaps in some other more catastrophic ways. In the Torah, we learn that we sit in judgment. When we sit in judgment, we should do so with righteousness. It says in Vayikra, you should not commit a distortion of justice as a judge in court. You should not favor the poor nor honor the great. With righteousness, you should judge your fellow. So on a procedural justice level, 
we understand um, this idea, uh, understanding of, of, of our biases of how we think about judgment. Based on this verse, the Talmud is us to be Dan Lechav Schut. That is the Hebrew phrase that is the phrase of the day. Dan Lechav Schut, to give the benefit of the doubt to others. It says over here in, in the Talmud, with righteousness, you must judge your fellow. This means that you should judge your fa- fellow favorably. Right? Interesting. So um, uh, that is Dan Lechav Schut. We should give them the benefit of the doubt. Innocent until proven guilty, as we say. Rashi comments here, judge your fellow favorably. What does this mean? This does not refer to judging litigants in court. Rather, it refers to someone who observes another person doing an action that could be interpreted as either a wrongdoing or as a neutral act. You should not suspect him of a wrongdoing. Rather, assume he's innocent, right? You see something. You don't know what's going on. It could be viewed as something neutral. It could be viewed as something um, uh, problematic. You see a married person having coffee with another person, and you're like, oh, this could be a business meeting. This could be something scandalous, right? How do you interpret that? You see a person, um, you know, fill in the blank. I mean, a whole, a whole host of things that people could be seen be doing that could clearly be wrong or could be interpreted differently. So for the Sefer Achinuch, This applies not only in the social realm, but also in the courtroom, as opposed to Rashi, who said it's only outside of the courtroom. Sefer Achinuch says that this could be taken as a step beyond the idea of being innocent until proven guilty. In his words, there is a mitzvah to judge with righteousness, which means treating the litigants fairly and equally. To presume that someone is innocent until proven guilty is to recognize the importance of the Talmudic dictum, Hamotzi mechavero alav haraya. If one wants to take from another, the proof is upon that person, right? Which is to say, you don't make a claim on a person and your claim is is taken seriously. You make a claim and the the burden is on you to prove your claim. Hamotzi mechavero alav haraya. So um, if you're going to say the person stole from you, you got to give us proof. You can't just make such a claim. If you want to say a person abused you, you can't just say they abused you. You got to give your evidence that you were abused, right? The burden is upon the person making a claim to show um, the proof that the other is in fact at wrong. That is someone who wants to prove someone else is guilty or liable a plaintiff in a civil case or, or the prosecution in a criminal matter bears the burden of proof. To view someone's actions always in a positive light adds another layer of favorable treatment if someone is accused. For some commentators, there's an interesting intersection between justice and love. Here's what one Musar teacher says. If one truly loves another as a father loves a son, he will very naturally have a positive outlook towards that person. He will see everything that person does in a positive light and judge them positively. Thus, the mitzvah of judging positively is really an outgrowth of the mitzvah to love your fellow as yourself. The extent to which one judges others positively is a good indicator of his love for others. Right? You understand that? If you don't love someone, you're going to judge them more harshly. If you love someone... You're going to judge them favorably. If it's your four-year-old in school who gets a phone call that they're not acting nicely in school, you're like, my four-year-old? 
<laughs> I love this job. Like, that's not my four-year-old, right? Because right? you're gonna you give them the benefit of the doubt from because you love them. And so, how do we judge people more favorably? Says this Musa teacher, we have to cultivate love for them. Once you love someone, you're gonna give them the benefit of the doubt some all the more so. If they hate someone, they can't do right in your eyes, right? Everything they do, um, of course, is suspect. So for this Muslim teacher, judging favorably is about loving others. The spiritual shift that's required here is to move from just observing an action to inspiring others to assume that another person's actions are motivated by positive inclinations. Here's how another Musar teacher taught this, Rav Shlomo Volbi of the 20th century. He wrote, someone who judges others favorably really hopes that their fellow person is guiltless. They seek ways of understanding the other actions as good. This is the extent to which one must regard another person with a positive attitude and wish to see their actions as issuing from a good source. This is the opposite of what most people usually do, which is to immediately notice another person's shortcomings and ignore their strong points, right? And so this is a, so how do we do this according to Wolby, Rav Shlomo Wolby? We have to practice. You practice. Next time you find yourself seeing a person and automatically thinking negative things about them and their intentions, you have to practice flipping it. You have to think, well, what if this is what's going on? What if this is their intentions, right? Now, um, that's not always easy, um, but, Matt, but um, we can practice this today. Make a few notes that when we, someone is annoying us, maybe they're driving slowly or maybe they're driving fast. Maybe there's someone we don't like on the news, right? Maybe there's um, someone who bothers us quite a bit um, for one reason or another. And think about what's an alternative interpretation about what this person is doing here, what they're intending. So this idea of judging others favorably has precedent in the Mishnah in Pirkei Avot, where it says in Pirkei Avot, Yehoshua ben Prachya says, establish a rabbi for yourself, acquire a friend, and judge every person favorably, right? What in the world do those have in common? Make a, t- make a rabbi for yourself. Okay, that's, that makes sense. Everyone should have a teacher. Acquire a friend. Okay, interesting that the verb now is not established, but acquire. Um, everyone should have a friend that's going to play a different role from a teacher, right? Your teacher is not your friend, and your friend is not your teacher. I mean, there might be some overlap, but in general, it's a different role. And then judge everyone favorably. So I'm not going to answer that. Maybe we'll, you'll have an idea you'll share with us later. What in the world does this idea of judge favorably have anything to do with the first two teachings? So the Rambam, Maimonides comments here... Judge everyone favorably. This refers to someone who you do not know and therefore can't tell if they're a tzaddik or a rasha, if they're an upright person or a wrongful person. Because in such a case, if you see them doing something or saying something that could be interpreted in two ways, one good and one bad, you should give them the benefit of the doubt and assume the action is good. This approach is praiseworthy. Ah, ah. So the Rambam says something very interesting here. He says... If you know someone is a tzaddik, you know they're a good person, you should automatically assume, assume they're not doing wrong. You know someone's a Russia, you know this is a person who's a scandal, who's always doing wrong, who is selfish or mean-spirited. Of course, a smart person's not going to give them the benefit of the doubt. You should be skeptical of them. You don't give the benefit of the doubt to a Russia, 
someone who you know is kind of a wicked person who's always kind of out there only for themselves, you don't just go give the benefit out. You'd be a fool. You're a fool to give them the benefit out. So who does Rambam say it applies to? It applies to someone you have no knowledge of their virtue and vices. The tzaddik, the, the you, judge, you, judge, you judge very well. You're going to defend them if someone accuses them. No, no, no. You've got the wrong person. I know this person. The, the Russia, you're not going to give them the benefit of the doubt. You're going to assume they're doing bad, right? But the, but the person you don't know anything about, the Rambam says, ah, that's who you're going to apply this to. So again, he has three categories. Someone we know to be righteous, someone we know to be wicked, and someone we don't know anything at all. When it comes to the third category, someone we don't know, that's where we need to make this leap toward the benefit of the doubt. On the other hand, we have another teaching from Pirkei Avot on this matter. It says over there, don't judge your fellow until you have reached their place. Ah, until you've reached their place. That's very interesting. So this source does not distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. Rather, we are not positioned to be judgmental at all, since everyone is different, in a different place, at a different time, with different genes and a different background and a unique scenario Human perspectives and experiences are so radically diverse that we might never be able to fully understand one another and therefore should try to refrain from judging each other. The commentator, Revavadi of Bartonura, limits this to a very specific challenge. He says, if you see someone else fail a challenge, do not judge them until you have undergone the same challenge and overcome it. Okay, now that's also kind of difficult because that can sound a little bit like, hey, I was poor and I pulled myself up from my bootstraps. And so I can judge you who are poor and not pulling yourself up because I did it, right? But bracketing that scenario or, hey, I had cancer. I did chemo. I got through it. You got this, right? Toughen up, right? That can lead to a lack of empathy. But I don't think he's saying that. I think what he's saying is like, like unless you trekked across the Mexican border, right, in 110 degrees, um, you know, to try to find safety, don't judge why that person is a migrant, right? Unless you were homeless, don't try to judge homeless folks, right? Unless you experienced anti-Semitism, don't try to you know, um, you know, make suggestions on what that experience is about or what really is defined as anti-Semitism or the like, right? Rabbi Yoshua Leib Diskin offers a brilliant psychological insight here about how judging others favorably not only is more empathetic to others, but how it also helps keep our own behavior in check and holds us accountable. This is great how Musar flips it back on us also, how this puts ourselves in check as well. He says, consider the following. Um, We're on the wrong slide here. Here we go. Consider the following. A town has 10 Jewish people living in it. If one person commits a transgression, he breaks down the fence of embarrassment, which had prevented people from sinning until now. If a second person sins, he does not need to break this barrier and he does not need as much brazenness because the second person is only sinning in front of eight others and he has the other sinner as his accomplice. If a third person sins, he requires even less brazenness 
in telling us to judge every person positively, the sages are giving us wise advice. This advice is in order that we should not break down the internal barriers of embarrassment that hold us back from transgressions. When we view every person as being righteous, then we will hold ourselves back from transgressing since we will think that no one else is transgressing. So how could we be the first? However, when one sees the negative in every person, then he's likely to stumble since he will think others are transgressing and therefore it becomes more acceptable in his mind to transgress. So I love this. Rabbi Yeshua Leib Diskin is also offering us a thought experiment. He says, if you judge people unfavorably, you lower the moral bar for your own behavior. If you think other people are doing good around you, you've raised the bar, right? If you're like, ah, everyone's kind of getting a little extra scoop of ice cream. Everyone's getting a little extra refill of the drink, even though it's not allowed. Everyone's kind of getting a little off the edge. You know what I mean? Like, what's the problem if I do it? Everyone's getting ahead. I, I don't want to be the, I don't want to be the loser who's, who's, who's not also getting ahead. Everyone's kind of cheating the taxes a little bit, right? You know, you know, so it's okay if I get a little on my side too, right? Um, you know, everyone's making a little extra claim on their insurance, right? So, you know, but if I think others aren't doing this, if I judge everyone a little positively, right? I think other people aren't doing this. Like, uh, uh, I'm going to be the one to do this, right? I'm going to be the one to, right? So, and so by judging others favorably, I'm raising the moral bar of how I participate in society, in the community, right? Um, and so that's interesting to go into our own psyche to say, Ah, do I think most people are cheats? I know people like this. Ah, everyone's a cheat. Everyone's selfish. Everyone's out there for themselves. You, you know a lot about it, that person's character when they think that. What they're really saying is the bar is very low for my behavior. And I know other people who say, oh, I find the good in everyone. I think people are beautiful. I think people are generally good, right? They're, they're generally good as opposed to everyone's selfish, right? And what, what, what you're learning about them is that that they have a high moral bar for themselves by saying they think everyone's good is that they're saying they themselves have to operate good, right? So we can now shed light on the mitzvah of tending to the needs and burial of the deceased. It's only this particular mitzvah that's referred to as a chesed shel emet, true or completely pure, kindness. This chesed is traditionally explained as emet because it simply cannot be repaid by the deceased. Perhaps we can add another meaning to chesed shel emet. Every person upon their death is entitled to and receives the same treatment. <laughs> There's no distinction between one individual and the next. Tending to the burial and other rites of the deceased then compels us to set aside any preconceived judgment of the individual. Um, and in that sense, is kindness in its purest form. And so when we think about judgment in relation to death, it raises a whole new uh, level of what we expect in return when we're judging another's motives and judging our own. So going back to the Sefer Achinuch, there's a related but different goal here, to build community. He says the mitzvah to judging favorably serves as a catalyst for achieving peace and friendship between people. Therefore, the main purpose of this mitzvah is to direct communities in establishing fair judicial systems and to bring peace between them by removing the suspicion between one person and another. By judging favorably, we develop social trust, we foster positivity, and we build a more peaceful coexistence. For Rambam, this should be a priority for a learned person who will be serving as a public model. Here's what the Rambam writes. 
A scholar should not shout like an animal when he speaks with people. Neither should he raise his voice. Rather, they should speak calmly with everyone. They should make sure that to take the initiative to greet everyone first so that they are pleasant to be around. They should judge people positively and speak favorably about others, never speaking neg negatively about them. They should love and pursue peace. In general, they should always speak words of wisdom and loving kindness. And so one of the ways the Rambam says we know someone is righteous is how they talk about others, right? This is not just about the ethics of speech, but it is also about um, uh, an insight on their, on their psychological disposition of how they generally view others, right? Another theological layer informs how we should treat others. The Talmud teaches if one judges one's fellow positively, they will be judged positively by the omnipresent. Now, when I say um, that, that um, who believes in a God who is a judge, most people say, nah, nah, not into God to judge. That's old school. Like, I don't want a God who's judgment. I want a God who's loving. If I say, how many believe in karma? I was, oh, oh, karma. I love it. Karma. Right. So it's the same thing. When you put it in an Eastern word, it sounds really great. When you put it in a monotheistic you know, piece of art with God, the judge, old man with the beard in the sky. I'm like, oh, I don't want that guy, right? But here, what we're basically saying is, right, that there's a karma. If we judge others positively, God will judge us positively, right? Now, that's not the motive to do it necessarily, but it, it's a theological point from the tradition, which is to say that, like, God is going to follow our lead, right? God's going to follow our lead, right? If you judge people harshly, then God is going to see that in us also, so to speak. And if we judge other people positively, God will see that in a way as well. So the way that, um, that we will judge will determine how God views us. The Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidut, takes this approach to a whole new level. Here's what the Besh has to say. We have a tradition that no verdict is ever passed on a person until they themselves issue that verdict. Oh, it, how so? The person has shown someone else doing what he himself is guilty of. And his reaction to that person's flaw is what determines the judgment of their own misdeeds. So the Baal Shem Tov says that we are, our judgment is not passed until we have passed the same judgment upon another. Right? Um, uh, someone is like, um, someone says, uh, uh, well, I'm not going to use an example right now. I have too many examples and they're all kind of, kind of heavy. <laughs> but essentially, um, for the Baal Shem Tov, every moment in activity, as well as its interpretation, is about both others and about ourselves. We think we're judging an external event, but actually we're judging ourselves. We are, we are creating new synapses in our brain around how our brain interprets reality. Everything, it is all intertwined. And everything comes back to our interpretation and to our personal reality. The way we judge external events affects the internal events that connect to us. All right, we're moving towards a conclusion here. For Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, the Ramak, this is less about self-interest and self-protection. Rather, it's about divine emulation. God restricts divine harsh judgment, and so should we. God is merciful, and so should we be too. And so a very strong case can be made not for being judgmental. 
Clearly, it's an important spiritual way to live. On the other hand, we are called upon to be advocates for justice, to be discerning about good and evil. What do you mean? What about speak truth to power? What about, right, go out there and fight for, for go fight for those who have been, who have been harmed, right? Speak out against evil. We are to learn how to identify the righteous from the wicked. We are bidden to associate with the righteous and to distance our, ourselves from the wicked and to be align ourselves with the team that's, that's fighting for good. So we are to prevent moral boundaries from being crossed and to speak out to advocate for the, for the downtrodden. We must assess and judge fairly, but also critically. Only if we can judge injustice done by others and learn from it, can we be aware of what we must guard ourselves from. So how do we hold a spiritual consciousness of being non-judgmental alongside a social justice consciousness of being a public ambassador for what is just, thereby providing a critique of what is unjust? The answer to the seeming paradox is that perhaps we must slow down and not bandwagon on rapid social shaming and jump on campaigns without facts. It means we must not equate not liking someone with them being evil. It means that we cannot and must not confuse ideological diversity with a stark categorization of people as good and evil. Perhaps we can be suspicious of those whose attitudes and actions harm others, but at the same time, we must try to give the benefit of the doubt to everyone who deserves it. So friends, there is a lot at stake here. How we are to judge others fairly, our own spiritual health, the way we ourselves will be judged, and how we can sustain communities and society. We will need to take stock of our defense mechanisms of fearing our own judgment and thus channeling that fear by turning our judgment upon others. In addition to healing ourselves with less judgment, we can heal our relationships by ensuring others feel less judged. This intellectual and spiritual work is some of the most challenging yet most elevating we will encounter. Let us always be mindful of being Don Lechavschut, that we must make, make this our endeavor and rise to the occasion. Okay, my dear friends, that was a mouthful, um, um, but I would love to hear from you. Yes, hi, Eric. Rabbi, thank you so much. This was really amazing. Um, so much to pack in with so little time. So let me just uh, point out one thing I noticed that wasn't talked about, but I'd like to get your thoughts and other people's thoughts on is some kind of, if there's some kind of correlation or some kind of ties with the notion of judging favorably and the notion of the practice of, of abstaining from Lashon Hara, because I could see like how the judge and favorably, how Lashon Hara can have an impediment to the idea to be able to judge favorably if there's already. Uh, the idea of, of that already influenced. I'd like to get your thoughts on, do you see a causality, a correlation, some kind of cause and effect? Um, what do you see? The, the Or do you not see them? I mean, I see there's some kind of relationship, but I don't know. I like to see how you describe it. I love it. I love it. Okay. So I'm going to step back theologically for a moment before we get into the intensity of Eric's um, very insightful question around the relationship between speech and this psychological disposition. And let's look at the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. You know, there's three different voices over there. Who are the three voices? Well, of course, God says things. 
People also say things. Who's the third person who says things? The narrator. God says things. People say things. And the narrator says what God does. Who is this narrator? Right? Who is speaking over there? Now, let's go into, uh, into, um, into trans, in, into um, the reality of transgender uh, folks for a moment. Is gender a social construct? Is gender essential to who we are? I'm sure some of us think here that gender is essential to who we are. I'm sure some of us think here it's a pure social construct. I'm sure some of us think it's a combination of the two. But interesting enough, God says, uh, there is something that could be described as a biological reality, our sex, but gender is introduced by the human voice, ish and isha, man and woman. And so that would be a case for saying that humans uh, um, are um, construct gender. God did not. Um, in fact, the Talmud itself has a whole exploration around how the first being themselves was a non-gender or uh, non-binary being when Adam is created prior to to Chava, when Adam is created before Eve, this is a non-gendered being. And so this is a a, a long way of getting to this issue of, of the power of speech and how the rabbis say speech actually creates the world. God didn't act to create the world. It was speech that actually had an emanating effect because there's, there's, there's the, there's the realm of being. Then there's the realm of doing. Then there's the realm of speaking. And then there's the, there's the emanation from there, from the state of nothingness. Does something come into being right now? The way we experience as humans, the transition from nothingness to somethingness might be, the, the transition from the pre-conscious to the conscious, right? And how do we move from the pre-conscious to the conscience? We might say sometimes it is being the narrator of our lives. It is moving what cannot be spoken to the realm of spoken, right? We now can articulate what we, what we knew but didn't quite know yet, right? Of course, knowing is deeper than what can be articulated. Um, that's one of the postmodern evolutions from modernity. The modern philosophers thought the highest form of truth is speech. What we can, through reason, articulate. In postmodernity, we said, nah, uh-uh. truth transcends reason and truth transcends speech. Okay? So speech is making explicit, making more conscious what was already on a kind of pre-conscious level, a level beyond the subconscious, and of course, beyond the unconscious. Now, judging another may be emerging in the pre-conscious. I'm not even aware that I have a bias of a colored person and a white person. I'm not aware of my biases towards somebody's age or their physical abilities. I'm not aware of my bias based on someone's wealth, right? I'm not aware of all my biases of how I'm judging people based on the symmetry of their face, right? How, how symmetrical are the two sides of their faces? I'm not aware that I'm judging them based upon my experience when I was three and I encountered someone who looked like them, right? And so there's a lot of unconscious layers to judgment, right? And 
now Eric's point of, well, Lashon Haras speaking negatively, like how far removed is that from this psychological state, the pre-conscious state of judging? Forget even the conscious judging. I know I'm judging someone. I'm in a judgment role. I'm deciding to hire or fire somebody. I'm deciding, do I want to go on a second date with this person, right? I'm deciding like, um, you know, um, do I want to vote for this person, right? Um, I, I'm making, I know I'm making a judgment. That's what the job I'm in. I'm supposed to be in the job of judgment right now, right? That's what I'm doing. Like it's, it, I'm, I'm being more fair to the person by making a judgment, right? Um, but then there's this unconscious level of judgment that is that is permeating all of our existence, right? That is beyond this, this realm of speech. And so I'm not going to answer Eric's question as much as problematize it and elevate and kind of amplify the, 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 like the intensity of this relationship between the known and the unknown, the spoken and the unspoken, um, and the judgments we know we're making and the judgments we don't know we're making. Let me say one last thing before I, I, I move to others here, um, which is we also know there's a very deep correlation between how we judge ourselves and how we judge others, right? And let me overstate it because I know this is kind of, we, we say this all the time, and I'm sure it's not, um, you know, it, it has some empirical truth, but is never perfectly true. Those who judge themselves more harshly are more likely to judge others harshly. And those who judge themselves more compassionately will judge others um, oftentimes more compassionately. Um, of course, with many exceptions to that. And so part of the psychological reality is going into our own self-esteem, our own psyche of how we view ourselves and then think about how that relates to how we view others. Okay, that was a mouthful. Eric, hope we'll, I hope we'll come back to you. Let's go to Lauren and then Aglaia. Hi. <clears throat> Perfect time for me because, I am sorry. <clears throat> a week today, I've got to go on jury duty and I'm hoping oh. I'll be selected. <laughs> I don't oh. want to do it. But Lauren, Lauren let me, that, that means you're a nice person. Um, because my wife is also like in, in jury duty for like on a grand jury for like a year, you know, and it's like, uh, uh, she can't go to work. She can't like take care of our, like do the things she, uh, and, and, and everyone said to her, oh, why don't you get out of it? Like you could have said this, could you? and she was just honest. She was like, they're like, we're like, she's like, they're like, are you capable of doing this or will impede your life duties? And she wanted to be like, it'll be really, she was like, it'll be really hard for me and for my family and for my work, but I guess I'm capable of it. As opposed to someone who's like, no, nope, not capable. I got all these responses. So anyways, long story short, thank you for being honest with, with the court and for doing your citizen to do, doing your citizen's duty to the state of Canada. <laughs> Have to. Anyways, <clears throat> but my, I'm so sorry. I'm still, <clears throat> still affected by kind of a long COVID. Um, but I, I do judge people who I think are despicable. And, 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 and let me give you an example of a person. So a friend of mine, I don't know why, she keeps telling me about this other friend who's like a, an anti-vaxxer, anti-masker, which would be bad enough. But then the woman went ahead and spent money on buying a fake vaccine passport and used it to fly and used it to attend the ballet when you had to have a, a vaccine passport. And I can't help but thinking about somebody like that as truly despicable. Is there a way of looking at it differently? Am I being overly harsh? Okay, great. 
So I don't want to answer whether we should do that or not. What I want to challenge us to do is to think about when we do that, how does it affect us? Um, when, when we see despicable stuff, as we do all the time, and we interpret it, then for us to observe, how does my interpretation of this despicable behavior affect me? How does it affect my spiritual state of the day? Um, how does it affect my own moral character? How does it affect um, my relationships? And there's no easy answers to that. It's going to be different for all of us. And on, on just a moral judgment level, there's no doubt, Lauren, it's fair to do that. Like, we see despicable stuff. It's fair to be like, oh, that's despicable. Like, we, we need the capacity for moral outrage. We need it. Like, we should be outraged by despicable stuff. Like, you know, like, we don't want to live with apathy where we're just not bothered by it. Like, seeing despicable stuff should make us outraged. And outrage can then be channeled towards productive measures. And yet, and yet, um, the amount of despicable stuff that's happening in the world at every moment it's pretty large. There's also a lot of beautiful stuff happening at every moment. And so we're going to have to figure out how we're going to hold all that in a way that's going to be psychologically, spiritually sustainable, and in a way that's going to be productive. And I also want to remind us of one of the tools, it's only one of many, that the Baal Shem Tov gives us, that when we see despicable behavior and it bothers us, it also reminds us that there's a little bit of that despicable behavior in ourselves. Right. Obviously not on the same level of what that person is doing, uh, or hopefully not. Um, but that same trait that is leading to that despicable behavior is in us. And it is a reminder for us to work on that trait and to uproot it. And so um, and, and I see it all the time. Like I see like, you know, I see things that bother me and I'm like, wait a minute. I do that, too. That guy on the airplane who's got like five bags and he's swinging his bags and it's like hitting everyone in the head. I'm like, I'm that guy. I've got a baby on my back. I've got bags on my shoulder. I'm banging them. And I'm so mad at that guy because he's just banging everyone. In. I'm like, have you no respect? So so, you know, it's so you're right, Lauren. We have the right to to hate despicable behavior. And yet there's some other questions we can ask alongside alongside it. So thank you. Thank you so much. Aglaya, Aglaya, and then Toby, and then Cheryl. Okay, so short version of the story to piggyback on before I get to what I was really going to talk about, to piggyback on what we're just talking about. Um, that's a history class discussion that I have with every single class every single semester, because they'll say, oh, we don't want to repeat the past. And I'm like, how are you not how is how is being in this classroom actually going to do that for you? And then I say, well, it, what's the best use of your time if you're reading about Thomas Jefferson and the levels of grossness he did with Sally Hemings? Um, he's dead. He doesn't care if you think he's a despicable person, though. You know, use that time effectively by reflecting on how you're selfish, I'm selfish, that kind of thing. Now, that was also part of a Hegel thing, though, but I don't want to sound like Gilderoy Lockhart and say, like, you know, oh, see my published works, but, you know, did anyone understand my joke? Gilderoy Lockhart? Okay. No. All right, never mind. Okay, anyway, no Harry Potter fans in the room, so anyway. Oh, oh, okay, yeah, maybe you'll put your joke, explain your, chat, your joke in the chat after your comment, so we can okay. understand it. <laughs> okay, so when you were talking about like the four-year-old and, you know, and everything in school and stuff like that, thank you, somebody got it. Okay, awesome. Okay, so it reminded me of this passage and it's um, Samuel, um, 2 Samuel um, 14, I think it's 14, yeah. 
I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. When he does wrong, I will chastise him with the rod of men and the affliction of mortals. But I will never, never withdraw my favor from him as I withdrew it from Saul, whom I removed to make room for you. Your house and your kin, kingship shall ever be secured before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, that whole passage, the long story short, talking about people who judge themselves harshly, judging other people harshly. That passage actually did a lot of good for me because I was someone who was going to beat myself up over, I don't know, trying to get a, an extra bag onto the airplane and everything, though. But it's kind of, I don't know why, but it just kind of struck me as, well, if God's actually the one who's doing the judging and he's doing the, he's in charge of doing the disciplining and everything like that, then why do I have to beat myself up? And then why also do I have to beat up others, you know, just psychologically? So any comment on that? Oh, yeah. So um, I'll just give a brief comment because there's so much there. Mm -hmm. One of, so there's a prayer called Tachanun. Mm -hmm. And Tachanun is a prayer that many um, Jews recite after the Amidah, after the daily standing prayer. And it's based off David's, uh, the, the, um, the, the first part is based off something David says. Mm -hmm. um, where um, David says, let me fall into, um, into, into God's judgment rather than human judgment because human judgment is too harsh for me to survive, mm -hmm. whereas God's judgment is compassionate. And, um, uh, and, uh, and so there is something actually liberating to return to God as judge. I know it sounds archaic, um, but actually, many people feel very unsafe in a world of human judgment. And to return to kind of a loving judge, it's kind of like, yes, were our parents our judges when we were kids telling us good behavior or bad behavior? Well, let, let's, let's assume our, our, our parents were Hypothetically. present. <laughs> <laughs> Hypothetically. Hypothetically, they're supposed to be good. <laughs> let's assume they were present and loving and good people, and they were there, and they were, our, and they were a judge for us. We would rather they judge us than the principal, right? Because mm -hmm. they had our back, right? So too, like a, a notion of God as judge, a God who has our back can be liberating. Um, and so David is in his Psalms, his back and forth wrestling with this. He mm -hmm. feels vulnerable in a world of human atrocities and he feels safe in a world of being naked before God um, in a sense. And mm -hmm. so... Um, um, I don't know if I directly kind of touched on what you were, the direction you were going. Well, yeah, no, yeah. you did actually though. And also about being naked. I got into a, okay. So I got into an online little bit of a debate with um, someone, Uriel Abulov has, I have any of you heard of him, Uriel. Okay. Well, anyway, though, he's a, he, I don't know where he is now. I think he might be at Princeton now. I don't know, but we're talking about um, the whole uh, binding of Isaac and whether or not that, you know, like he made some sort of comment about like it sort of made up for the, um, what he phrased, the unfortunate business in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> so anyway, though, but I kind of was debating. I was like, no, I think I, um, Abraham, I was kind of a little bit on Soren Kierkegaard, you know, kick at that point, though. But I kind of said, well, about being naked in front of God, well, you have to actually you're only you're actually never going to be anything but naked in front of God, because right, he right. sees all of your, so, right. yeah, that's right. kind of, mm -hmm. yeah, thank you for that, thank you for that, and, and, and the deepest level of nakedness, um, right. that th there's nothing we can hide um, right. of, our, of our body, of mm -hmm. our mind, of our soul, of our past, 
And that should might give us a little bit of a trepidation, but actually can be very liberating um, mm-hmm. in the sense of like, there is a space where nobody has to try to be anything other than right. what they are in their deepest core. We mm-hmm. don't have to question anything. Um, and, and we can see that the origin of all we are on the most naked level comes from a divine origin. And mm-hmm. that makes it lo- much less judgmental also. So thank you for that. Hi, Toby. Well, I don't have anything quite so high-handed as all of that, but I do have a lesson uh, that I learned when I started doing major felonies, and I had a client who was an ex-Tempe cop, and uh, and he was accused of some pretty nasty stuff. These were sex crimes, and I won't go into detail, but he had two, two different jurisdictions, two different charges, and I'm like, mm, yeah, okay. And of course, the first thing that crossed my mind is this dude is really guilty. So anyway, I get him in my office and I'm talking to him. And he says, no, I didn't do either one of those things. I didn't didn't do it. I said, guy, I have a confession on tape in the Mesa Police Department. You confess to the sergeant. No, no, I never did that. I never did that. So I'm listening. I play the tape for him. And he says, that's not my voice. And I'm thinking in my head, right. He's confessing to a sergeant in the Mesa Police Department. Okay. Ante. And I'm, you know, okay. So I thought to myself, well, all right. His sister wanted to hear the tape. He approved that. She came in, she listened to the tape. She says, that's not my brother's voice. And I'm, you know, sitting there going, well, yeah, okay. You would say that. I gave her a copy of the tape, which is perfectly legal to take to a voice analyzer. She had the voice analyzing guy do it. This was 20 years ago, so the science wasn't really great. And the science comes back, no, it's not his voice. So then I had my own independent expert analyze the tape. It's not my client's voice on this tape. So we go through, I send it to the prosecutor, and I'm going, dude, this is not my guy. Anyway, um, as it turns out, the prosecutor was a righteous person, confronts the sergeant over at the Mesa Police Department. In tears, the guy breaks down finally and says, "Uh, well, I forged the tape because your client was banging my wife. (laughs) Not to be rude about it, but the bottom line is he had an ulterior motive, accused my client of something, and then proceeded to falsify the confession. Well, needless to say, he was let go from Mesa Police. This is 20 years ago, but it's, you know, fresh in my mind. But the thing that's really troubling to me is that I did not believe my clients. I, and I was, I was sure. Well, it can, you know, a false accusation can happen once, but can it really happen twice in two different jurisdictions? Well, as it turns out, we have the trial the Mesa case is dismissed. <clears throat> he has another case where it turned out, again, my client might have not have been a wonderful person. He was quite the womanizer, it turned out. But he was accused of something in another jurisdiction. We go to trial. He's found not guilty because the jury did not believe the accuser. As it turned out, again, this woman confessed to, to having an affair with my client. He left her. And anyway, the point being that he was accused in two different places of doing a very bad thing. And he was not guilty of either one of those. And I was convinced 
that he was guilty of both of them. Right. And, and, you know, in my job, I'm not allowed to do that. Right. Wow. So thank you for that. Yeah, there's really a lot there. And I think yeah, just before we go to Cheryl and Gary, one, one, one thing, one of the many things I'm taking away from your comment as well is sometimes we can judge someone as not being a wonderful person, um, but that doesn't give us the right to judge them um, unfairly in a whole bunch of other areas. So someone is, a, you know, um, someone is a womanizer, as you said, um, but that's very different than being a than being a molester or a rapist or or, or the like. Um, and it's very easy to say, "Well, this person's already a you know already you know." And and so um, that's kind of another level of like we have to judge with precision. And even if we've judged one part of someone to be unfavorable, um, there's a whole bunch of other layers that still deserve um, um, fairness. So, Toby, thank you. Thank you. It's always nice when you bring in your, your cases. By the way, tangentially, what we were talking about the last few weeks here, you probably heard in Texas that they halted the execution of the guy in death row. So that, that was just yesterday. So that's pretty big news. So, Cheryl. Yeah. Hi, Cheryl. Hi there. Um, a couple things. I think with um, age, um, not necessarily wisdom, but... Um, an understanding that, I mean, because we see kids bullying, it's kids who bully kids and kids who are judging kids. Uh, and that leads to bullying because of what you said earlier. Maybe they might not like their face or the, how they dress or whatever. But getting as you get older and hopefully outgrow some of that, you realize that um uh, the thing that resonated with me is don't judge unless you have walked in, in their shoes. I, want, I I remember in my 20s with my um, brother-in-law who had children five years or so before we did, um, I was critical of some of their parenting skills. Well, I'd never even been a parent, you know, so how how could I... How could I do that? So I, I just think that it, with age, become, you know, comes an understanding or a, not mellowing. I don't want to say that because I still have I certainly still have opinions of things and everything. But I, I think you reserve you, you, you reserve how you approach different mm -hmm. things. That's one thing. And then the other thing is about being critical about walking in your shoes. There's a lot of criticism about people who live either from American Jews about Israeli Jews and vice versa, you know, and with, you know, Israeli Jews say, how can you say this when you don't live here? You know, how can you, how can you criticize us for, for what we're doing when you're not here? You know, if you, if you want to buy in and come and live here, then you have the right to say or to mm -hmm. judge how mm -hmm. our government is handling or we're handling or I, I that's that's what I'm really getting out of this today is about you know walk a mile in their shoes before you before you say something so yeah I love that and 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 the most poignant point they make on that is that they're literally putting their children you know in um you know in the army for three years mm -hmm. and so uh yeah thank you for that um thank you for both those points awesome Gary actually I'm sorry Hi, hi, Gary. Gary? Uh, here I am. Hello. Hi. 
Well, nice to be back with everybody. I was away for about three weeks. <laughs> so the only comment that I had, I, I meant to say, uh, is if you've ever been in a situation where you have been accused, either rightfully or wrongfully, uh, in a situation and have been judged, and it turned out that it was wrongfully judged, uh, you know, it, it can develop a sense of uh, distrust and judging other people and have, having, it, having it happen to me, you know, for a long time, I've built up a lot of animosity over either the institution or the, uh, the individual. And I just found that, that it, is, it can be very liberating uh, at some point just to let it go because uh, you can carry the, the, the hurt and for a long time, it can really affect how you see other actions in the world by other people. And, uh, and, and by letting go, uh, again, it can be liberating. And then let you look at it from another perspective of not being so quick to judge people, as Cheryl said, because uh, you didn't walk in their shoes. And if that's the way that they want to judge you, then, you know, that's their problem. Uh, uh, otherwise, you just walk around with tons of baggage and you need to move on. And so that was my comment. Uh, the other comment that Cheryl just mentioned, having just come back from Israel uh, and having uh, read recently what happened in the egalitarian section of, uh, of, the, of, of the Western Wall uh, is exactly a, a bigger issue than, uh, but it surely talks about kindness and accepting people without judgment because uh, there were some horrible things that were done there uh, by the Haredi. Uh, and we don't need to get into it, but that's, uh, I, I, I think the tenets of Judaism were really crossed the line there. Right. So, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Great. Great. Thank you for all that. Um, and that's a really good segue. Um, you know, and part of what Gary, Gary's pushing us to, which I think is really powerful is letting go of hurt because this is, I mean, our work here is always intellectual, but it's always spiritual and personal as well. And we all carry hurt with us and we all have our own work of carrying it through and go and connecting what Gary said to what Eric said earlier, the connection between judgment and speech. Some of the hurt that's the hardest to let go of is we remember like the harshest accusation someone ever made of us or the meanest words someone ever said to us and like what they thought of us and holding that kind of self-perception inside of us of like that someone had believed that they, uh, for us to believe they judged us to be that right. And learning how to let go of that. And that's an interesting segue because I'm afraid I'm afraid we do have to pause here. But um, our 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 conversation, our learning next week is on Dibur Yafe, speaking kindly, and we'll see a little bit how speaking kindly kind of uh, grows out from this place of of judgment. So hope you all continue to join us. Have a good rest of your day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.